Hi, this is Ivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. I'm so excited that Audible is a sponsor of this podcast. I don't know if any of you listen to Audible, but I listen to a lot of audiobooks to prepare for this podcast, and I always use Audible. In fact, recently when I was sick with COVID, I listened to The Nightingale on Audible, which I had started while walking the dog, but I was laying there and couldn't even focus, so I just listened and listened, and it was amazing because I love Kristen Hanna. Anyway, you can go to audible.com slash Zibby or text Zibby to 500-500 to get a month free for your Audible membership, which you should definitely do. They have way more than just audiobooks if you haven't checked it out lately. They have a new offering called Audible Plus, the Plus Catalog, which gives so many things like words and music and podcasts you haven't maybe checked out yet. So definitely go to audible.com slash Zibby or text Zibby to 500-500. And if you're like me, you'll listen to a book on audiobook like I did when I was sick with COVID and couldn't even like focus on reading at all. So I listened to Kristen Hanna's The Nightingale. And that took me through my whole time in bed. <laughs> so please go to audible.com slash Zibby or text Zibby to 500-500 and enjoy it. Kristen Von Ogtrop is the author of Did I Say That Out Loud? Midlife Indignities and How to Survive Them. This, by the way, is one of my favorite books lately. Kristen is the author also of Just Let Me Lie Down, Necessary Terms for the Half-Insane Working Mom, the former longtime editor-in-chief of Real Simple and the amateur columnist for Time. She is now a literary agent at Inkwell Management. Her writing has appeared in countless publications and the New York Times bestselling collection, The Bitch in the House. She is a wife and mother of three, but sometimes loves her dogs more than anybody else. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Oh, it is my immense pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. As I've just been telling you, I keep recommending your book already, even though it hasn't come out (laughs) yet, because I read it while I was in bed with COVID and I tried so hard to read books and like keep my interest, but I was having a really hard time focusing. And your book was perfect because the essays were bite-sized and so funny that I was literally like laying there in bed, like, ha (laughs) ha. Anyway, I really appreciated the humor and the wit and, and just the way you packaged up all these essays and tied them up at the end. And it was just great. Well, thank you. You know, there are writers who really love writing. And then there are writers who really love publishing. And I'm a writer who really loves writing. Like I just, you know, we have something in my family called a self chuckle, which I'm accused of all the time, which is basically like when you do something to make yourself laugh. (laughs) And so I think writing for me is, is the best part sometimes is when there's like a little self chuckle that my family can make fun of me later for, but I don't know. It was, it was a lot of fun to write. That's sad sometimes because there's some sad things in the book too, but 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 fun, a lot of fun. I love the, the self-chuckle because I literally just said to somebody <laughs> yesterday at this desk, I was like, I think I just do all this stuff to make myself laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you can't, right? Like, what is life for? Like, if you can't make yourself laugh, 
And if you can't laugh at yourself, like I, I mean, I mentioned this a little bit in the book. My dad is a very funny person who laughs a lot. Like, you know, I listen to your podcast, Sibby, and I hear you have so much laughter in your voice, you know, and my dad is the same. Like he laughs a lot and he laughs the hardest at himself when he does something really stupid. And, and it's just such a nice quality in a person, you know, to be able to laugh at yourself when you're an idiot, which is a lot of time. Your dad is like my favorite person. I want to meet him. <laughs> he sounds so funny. The way he handled when you swallowed the fork and he was like, can I, could I just leave a fork on your pillow? And you're like, no dad, you cannot do that. That would not be funny. And then he's like at the parking garage or he's like, yep, yeah, this is my daughter. She swallowed a fork. <laughs> he just like he, and, and well, I don't know. Like I could go on about this forever. And I'm telling, I'm proving the point as I'm saying this to you, but like my dad can talk to anybody and will talk to anybody about anything and won't stop. And unfortunately I've inherited that characteristic, which bothers my children to no end. So you sound so much like my stepfather, Howard, who is the same way. Like you'll turn your back and next thing you know, he knows everything about like the caddy's mother and you know, you know, like everybody, he just knows, he finds out things about everybody and he's like, Everybody loves Howard. You know, he's like one of those guys. Yeah. So yes. Well, we had special breed. a few, but see, I try to tell my children who, you know, you're a mom of four. Like I write about my kids a fair amount in the book and like when you went and they're boys, so they, they don't, they have kind of a reluctance to talk to people sometimes. Right. And not to sex stereotype, but I'm going to do it anyway. They, I, I'm always trying to tell them like, when you talk to people, you learn things, right? Like you talk to strangers and you learn things. But we had this, we had this thing a, a few summers ago, we did a house swap with a cousin of mine who lives in Holland. She came and lived in our house in New York and we lived in her house and outside of Amsterdam. And by like day four, my oldest son said, mom, if you tell one more person that we're doing a house swap with your cousin, <laughs> I'm going back to New York. <laughs> because like ever, like the cheese shop and the wine shop, I just, what well, anyway, it's not, a totally it can be a useful <laughs> trait, Zibby, but it can be a really awful trait too. And I, I own yes, both. <laughs> well, I, I like that trait. And my future, my, well, this is, I don't even know how to say it. It's my father-in-law's fiance is also from Holland and they were, they stayed there for the entire quarantine. And I've been hearing nothing but Holland stories. Oh. So the fact that you were there, I feel like anyway, yeah. now this is like all these different parts of my family. Okay. So Tell me the part I really loved in particular. I mean, I loved a lot of the different parts and I loved this. The opening story was just like one of the funniest scenes ever, but the parting scene when you're leaving the magazine and how you talk about sort of the rise and fall of the magazine industry. And as someone who loves magazines still, and like I interned to Vanity Fair back in like, I don't know, 1990 Mm -hmm. something, because I'm really old. And just someone who's like watched this whole thing happen sort of in dismay, the way you wrote about it was so poignant from your perch sort of at the top of the whole thing. So I was hoping you could just talk a little more about that. And even like the scene at the end where you're hugging everyone and crying and like hoping your boss falls off the stage and like (laughs) that whole, (laughs) that whole thing, just maybe talk a little bit about how you feel about what's happened with, with magazines in particular. Well, so I'll, I'll start by saying we still read magazines in this house right? Although it's interesting to look at, I mean, your kids are younger than mine. My oldest is 25 and I've watched him mature as a reader. And I look at him and I think you're the reason the magazine industry is, you know, it is on the decline 
because people his age, I mean, he reads like novels on his phone. Like it's bananas to me. Anyway, so so I do still read magazines. And as you and I were talking about a couple of minutes ago, like just that tactile experience of, you know, and we used to say uh, of holding something in your hand and feeling it as you're reading it. There's just something in, in the connection between your brain and your hand that's very satisfying. And we used to say at Real Simple, or sorry, no, well, two things. Real Simple has this matte paper. It's printed on matte paper. And when you would go to focus groups, the readers would basically like pet the page. It was like, they loved the paper because it felt, it wasn't shiny. It didn't feel like it was yelling at them, you know? So it so reinforced the mission of what that magazine does, which is to make feel, women feel calm, women and some men feel calm. And But Dick Parsons, who was the CEO of Time Warner, when I first got to Time Inc., said, as long the magazine industry will, will survive, as long as the three Bs remain, bed, bath, and beach, which was, a, which was something I think we quoted a lot and he said a lot, although now we've all found clever ways to like, you know, take digital devices to all three of those places. So anyway, the, it was just, you know, it was the greatest, it was such a great job. I mean, I worked, as I talk about in that essay in the book, you know, I talk about how I landed in magazines after like being an incredibly clueless, like 20 something, you know, just, it was like, I just kept throwing stuff at the wall to see what was going to stick. And, and, and I ended up at Vogue because I met somebody at a wedding. I don't, I mean, I don't write about this in the book, but like the reason I ended up having an interview at Vogue was so ran, totally random. And, but when I got there, not knowing anything about fashion or caring about fashion, I was like, oh my God, like, these are my people, not like fashion people so much, but like, it, it, like to be a magazine editor, certainly at that time, you're like a professional dilettante, which is amazing, right? So like, if you're a person who's got kind of a short attention span, which I think I do sometimes, but, and is interested in a ton of stuff, it's a great, I mean, journalism is a great career for that, but the magazines and, and, and if you combine that with like a strong visual sense, Anyway, this is kind of a rambling answer to me. But so so I worked in a bunch of different places and then I ended up at Real Simple. And the thing for me that was so great about that job was it it took kind of who I was as a person being raised by a home economics major mom who like taught me how to bake a cake, right? And like trim a hamster's toenails or guinea pig's toenails. And then, but someone who was like relatively ambitious and loved going to an office and a professional dilettante and like combined all those things. And it was just like, it was like that magic thing where the thing you're doing and your skill set are like so perfectly aligned, you know? And, and, and I feel so blessed to have had that job. And, and, and the thing about when I left was just, you know, I, I knew, I mean, maybe the added blessing of the job was when I was in the job, I knew how blessed I was. Like, I knew how amazing a job it was for me. And I mean, there were frustrations, sure, as there are in every job, but like, I really, like, I had a ball. And so, but but the reason that essay is, well, I don't know. I, 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 think, I think of it as the only kind of angry essay in the book because by the end, I was just like super pissed off. You know, like I, I looked at my company, which was run by men, even though the products we were creating were mostly consumed by women and looked at the decisions they made based, I thought, often on their kind of personal preferences and biases in terms of where they were investing money, you know, to grow J 
different brands. And I felt like my brand, because we published recipes and, you know, we're about, did so much that was in the domestic sphere, was regarded as kind of less than or something. But we made, you know, I don't know, is there, are we allowed to curse on your podcast? Curse away. We made a shitload of money for that company. And I thought, okay, you know, like give us some love. And and anyway, so it, it was, I'll just say one last thing, but, but like for a long time in my time, timing, we had a female CEO and the way Real Simple was regarded in her years and more was her name was really different than when we had a male CEO. And that just felt really, really frustrating. But, you know, by the time she left and the men took over more fully, I also had been in the job for a long time and just felt like I wasn't as good at it anymore. Like the, the challenges that, that arose toward the end of my time at Real Simple were not ones that I either had the energy or the skills to, to face and overcome. So it was time for me to leave, both for me personally and for the sake of the magazine. And, you know, now there's a fabulous editor, Liz Vaccarelio, or I'm probably mispronouncing her last name, but she's a lovely woman and she does a great job and she's just the right person to be running that magazine. Well, it sounded like you were up against a lot, all the job cuts you were forced to do and the painful goodbyes. And it was just so nice to see that real connection at work because people don't often talk about the real relationships that you have with the people you work with and how it is like, you know, people are like, oh, it's my work family. But, you know, your essay really spoke to the heart of it and you could tell that it was a special place to work and you could tell the pain in having to let people go. And I don't know, it was just- Yeah, it sucks. There's there's a real human cost to all of this. It's a, it's a human cost on relationships and and just how you feel about yourself and all of it. It's not money, you know? I don't yeah. know. It was just a nice way to highlight that element of it. Well, I loved, I loved the people that I worked with there. No, you could tell. Anyway, to switch gears a little bit, I just wanted to read this quote from you, if you don't yeah. mind, because I loved this paragraph that you wrote about sort of aging and life. And like, I feel like this sums up so much that was in your book. But you said, Yeats knew that things fall apart and the center cannot hold. My center cannot hold either, which is why I've got back fat and a muffin top above the waistband of my pants, which looking at you, I find hard to believe. But anyway. anyway. Okay, fine, fine. That's true. Yeah. Thank God for Zoom. But I try to laugh because back fat and a muffin top and chipped paint and imaginary dinner guests are insignificant frustrations, minor indignities in the grand scheme. Middle age is full of them. And there are so many things that are much, much worse. None of us knows how life will turn out. And even if we forget everything else, who is Yeats again? We must not forget that. So let's just feel happy to be here, to cry sometimes when the occasion calls for it, but to laugh as often as we can. That is enough because consider the alternative. It's so nice. I love that. Thank you. Well, so thank you. And and thank you for reading that. I think it captures kind of the, what I hope is the spirit of the book, which is, you know, by the time you reach your forties and fifties and sixties, you, you know, like mortality is no longer, if you've led a relatively healthy and lucky life, which many people have, and, and, you know, not what I have been lucky enough to, you know, eventually mortality becomes, you know, it used to be an idea and now it's a presence. Right. And, and so you have to get up every day and say like, man, I'm just really, there was a moment after I had my third child, when I was, I I had turned 43 and I was in my suburban house and the baby was like two weeks old and my parents were visiting and our basement flooded. 
And it just like, you know, I was like nursing and exhausted and whatever, like not exactly a spring chicken as a new mom. And I was just so like, whatever, you know, you've, you've been through this. And it, then it was my birthday. A few weeks after the baby was born, I was turning 43 and the basement, like the, the floodwaters had receded and like whoever came to fix it helped and whatever. And, and I got up and I said, today's going to be a good day. And my parents like in unison said, every day is a good day. And I'll never forget that because I don't, they didn't like rehearse it, but they both just, and that's their mindset. And I think, you know, that's what I tried to capture in this book with whether you're dealing with like your muffin top over the, over the waistband of your pants or friends who die too young or careers that like blow up or slowly shrivel or whatever, you know, you have to remember, like, you're just lucky to be here. And you got to make the most of it. And, and as we were talking about before, like laugh when you can and hopefully laugh at yourself the hardest <laughs> when you <laughs> swallow a fork, among other things, you know? So Wow. Well, I love how you kind of track the passage of time with these little moments, like the chipping of, you know, your son banging into the thing with his scooter or skateboard mm-hmm. as my kids are literally scootering like, downstairs <laughs> all morning and like messing up my house as like in real time as I'm like reading this book. But it's true. And then you have that moment later in the book where you're sitting there and it's like so quiet in the house and you're like, and now, now I would, I miss that. And I feel like it's just such a relatable moment. I mean, I, I'm divorced and remarried. So I have like every other weekend, I have this quiet, like where I'm like, oh, I miss that. So I feel like I get this like preview of empty nesterhood, like every other week. So I have a pr- appreciation when they're here or I try to, if it can last 10 <laughs> days, but anyway, but there is that, like that, the fleetingness of the whole chaos. Yeah. And I don't know that scene with you sitting there like typing and you know, you're like typing the essay you're writing. is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was just so poignant well, and, and meeting. Yeah, I was sitting on my front porch and yeah. nobody was home, which is so rare. I mean, particularly now in COVID, like, you know, my house is packed. Like my adult sons are both living at home and my, my youngest son, who's almost 14, he's here. And obviously my husband's here and the dogs. And, and like, I, I, there's that tension that you feel, I'm sure, with your kids for 10 days. Like you, you, you long for the moment when you have a little bit of headspace and you're, you long to be alone. And then when you're alone, you're like, Oh, Oh, I'm lonely. (laughs) 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 And so like, there's no, I mean, that's why that moment on the porch in that essay is nice because I know it's going to end. Like I'm, I'm there by myself and I'm really happy. But part of the reason I'm happy is because I know that the people are going to come back. And so I don't know, you know, I don't know what happens to me. I don't know what happens when they're really gone. I think that's part of why I had a third kid at, at a, you know, after a big gap between number two and number three is like, I didn't want that part of my life to be over. And I don't know, was that like narcissism? I have a six year gap as well. I have like two sets of kids. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. I mean, there's something about, I mean, there is a lot of meaning to the whole thing, not to sound trite, but like, this is what I've really created in life as these kids. Yeah. I mean- that's what's going to, I don't know, this sounds ridiculous. But. Well, it's not ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. I mean, that's, you know, those kids are what are going to carry you through as you get old. You hope, right? If you have a some of, some of them. Might. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. Well, listen, you have a girl, right? Like I have two you girls. Have two girls. Yeah. Like I only have boys. And so sometimes I think, oh man, like I am so screwed. 
Like they're all just going to, again, sex stereotyping, but, but I look at the, I'm one of three girls as I write about a little bit in the book. And, and, you know, I look at the relationship that I have with my parents and it is so close and it's, and it's very strong and really dynamic. And I think part of that is because we're girls. Am I allowed to say that out loud? You know, and so I wonder, I hope like with the three boys, I at least get like one decent daughter-in-law. I think my aunts are pretty good. (laughs) I think so. I think so. My dad is one of three boys and my, one of my uncles totally stepped up and took care of my grandparents. Really? Yeah. My uncle Mark just, he did everything and it's not like anyone appointed him. He just was so devoted and managed everything and it just... You know, they were always completely loved and supported until the end. So I think somebody just always emerges from the group. And was it clear always that that was going to be Mark? Not until not until he later. was needed. Not until he was needed. Oh, all right, all right. Well, yeah, I thought it might have been my dad, but no, no such luck. <laughs> well, all right. But I know they. I know all the siblings really appreciated that he did step up. So I'm sure one of your sons will become your uncle Mark of the I family. Hope so. I hope. So. Giving me hope. So tell me a little, just a little about writing this book. When did you write? I know that one essay you wrote on your porch, but do you just like write as catch as catch can, or do you sit down and write in big blocks of time? What's your process like? So when I wrote this book, I I did it in a couple of different stages, I guess. Part of it I wrote when I was between leaving Real Simple, leaving the magazine industry and then joining Inkwell Management where I'm now a literary agent. And so that was, I took a two year break from working. And so I was writing and my friend Jim, who's a novelist has this phrase that I mentioned in the book actually, that he said, I needed to write with no attachment to outcome, just like sit down. And so like I tried writing a novel, which, which just wasn't very good. And I was gonna write a book about our dog who ended up drowning, which I, which is one of the essays in the book and sort of trying to make a parallel between that and my, the loss of my career and the loss of the dog and whatever. It like didn't work, but I just sat down and wrote with no attachment to outcome. And, you know, and that, and because it was in that two year period, I would just sort of like, I mostly like would sit at the kitchen counter and it was like, after I'd taken my son to school and I had the house to myself and whatever. But then I, then I started working again and have finished the book. And so I wrote some of the essays in, those two, in that two-year period, and I didn't really have a process. Once I was working again, um, I needed to really find kind of dedicated moments of time. And so I would get up, you know, at like six in the morning or something, and I would write for like an hour and a half before anybody got up. And then when I was finishing the book, I would go to this chopped Back when one could like go, well, you probably still can go to a chopped, right? I would, there was a chopped on 41st street between Madison and what's after Madison, Lexington Avenue. I never, no, park, park or fifth. All right. Yeah. Not fifth park. That shows you how long it's been, right? Since I've been. Yeah. That's embarrassing. You can't even admit that. I'm going to have to delete that part. (laughs) Um, There's a chopped. I would walk down Madison Avenue from my office. I would make a left on 41st street towards Park Avenue. And there's a chop there. And I would sit there for like an hour with my laptop and a salad and I would work. So that was my, my process. I don't know. It's not super organized. And like, I have a friend who watched the movie, Little Women, a young friend. And she's like, did you, did you have like a special outfit you put on? Like, like the main character in that movie. And I was like, no, no, (laughs) I have a laptop. (laughs) Wait, so what is it like now being an agent after transitioning to that 
new career? I mean, it's great. I feel super lucky to be able to make such a big transition, you know, at a fairly late stage. And I think a lot of the skills are really compatible. I mean, the mechanisms for, for delivering writing are obviously different, but the skills are similar. The skills you need to be a good agent are fairly similar, a lot of them. And so, but, but it's, you know, it's sort of like peeking behind the, the curtain in the Wizard of Oz or something like you, you kind of like, and you don't like what you see when you look behind the curtain. (laughs) So it's, it's interesting. It's, it's harder than I thought it would be. And, but I think that's good for me, you know? What's the hardest part? There are just so many books there. I mean, you know this, right? Like books are your world. Like there are just so many books and it's hard to, it, it can be hard to get a publisher to be interested in a book that you feel really has potential. That's probably the hardest part. The hardest part is working with a client who is entrusting you with her, his or her publishing future and not meeting success, you know, and that happens to any kind of agent. It happens to relatively new agents like me. And it happens to agents who have been doing it for 35 years, you know, like you just, you don't always succeed. And and so that part's kind of hard, Yeah, but it's fun. I mean, it's interesting and it's fun and you can be a professional dilettante. So that part's really good. (laughs) You can like work on the stuff that interests you. And that's really cool. That is really cool. That's amazing. So what advice would you have to aspiring authors? As an agent or as a writer myself? Do both. Okay. So as a writer, I would go back to that advice from my friend, Jim, that you should just write with no attachment to outcome. Just sit down and write. Don't wait for like some muse to fly in the kitchen window and land on your shoulder. Like it's never going to happen. I mean, it might, but I feel like a lot of Certainly new writers or young writers think that like some, some, like the clouds are going to part and something's going to happen and it's going to just come to them. And it's, you know, and like, and, and they don't realize you have to sit in front of that laptop or with that piece of, or that piece of lined notebook paper in front of you and just like start and see what happens. So that's what I would say as a writer. And then as an agent, I think that when I look at at writers who are successful or authors who are successful in getting published. And I'm not, I'm talking now just specifically about book publishing, not about magazines or newspapers, or I think you need, it's like a three-legged stool. You need talent, you need discipline and you need confidence. And, and confidence needs to take the form of like polite persistence. Like if you're an unpublished author and you're either looking for an agent or you're trying to self-publish or you're looking or you're going directly to a publisher, you really need to practice polite persistence because for, for agents and even more so for book editors, it's like drinking from a fire hose. They get so many submissions. And then, you know, you need discipline, kind of going back to what I said before, that you have to just like sit down and do the work. You can't, I don't know, it's a job. And then talent and, you know... So when you look at when you look at successful writers and those three things, talent, confidence, and discipline, different people have different amounts of each, right? And you have to know sort of where your weaknesses are and then push extra hard on those other two things, I think. Hmm. That's what I would say. But everybody's different. I was reading in the Times Magazine over the weekend that profile of Ishiguro because he's got that new novel coming out and he was talking about how yeah. like he walks around for two years thinking about his book. And then he spends like another God knows how long, like plotting the whole thing. Like I thought, wow, that is like so amazing. But you know, not everybody works that way. And what have you found 
makes things sell versus the things that don't sell? Oh gosh. I mean, at the end of the day, it's really talent. I mean, in publishing now, people talk a lot about platform and authors who need a platform and kind of early on in my agenting life. So now like a year ago or a little over a year ago, I went out to lunch with Susan Campbell, who was this beloved yeah. at Random House and unfortunately passed away, you know, probably six months after she and I had lunch. And she, but, you know, she'd been around forever and everybody loved her. And she and I are probably, she was maybe a little bit older than I am, maybe early sixties or something. I, I actually can't remember, but I was saying to her, what did book publishers do before like platform was a thing? And she said, well, we just, we just acquired things like on gut instinct. And I was like, can we go back to that? <laughs> can, we, can we do that again? So you know, in the absence of, if you're an aspiring writer and you're not a person with like a gazillion Twitter followers or Instagram followers, or, you know, some very successful presence outside of your writing life, you just need to be an incredibly great writer, you know, or have, or if, if you're doing an illustrated book, have something that's just so unique that people just can't look away. I don't know, Sibby. That's not really a very good answer. It was a good answer. I think that's great. I think it's neat to have the insight from an agent's perspective. I don't actually get a lot of agents on the show, really, because most authors... I mean, actually, I had Bill Clegg on the show, but I don't know. It's just... It's really an interesting perspective. And I'm start, I just started this fellowship of four... I'm doing four women memoirists a year, two to four, but this year I picked four. So I'm going to like help them with the whole process of writing their great memoirs and everything. So I'm interested in sort of that process on their behalf as well, because I'm going to like have them go through the whole thing. And it's just interesting to hear, like I've already picked them based on talent, right? And the stories that I think they have to tell. And once you have a great story to tell, like shaping it, I think is just part of the picture, right? I think having, having the story is you know, you can't fake a story anyway. No, wait, but I say, anyone else is it. I, can I say two quick things? Yes. I'm like thinking about Bill Clegg. Like you could have 15 agents on your show and you get 15 different answers. Right. So like I'm yep. one, obviously, but two, in terms of memoir, when I first started working at Inkwell, Richard Pine, who's one of the, of the three partners at Inkwell, who's my agent said, we were talking about memoir and he said, you know, you realize, right, that if you look at the New York Times bestseller list, oh, no, actually, a, an editor at Simon & Schuster said this to me, Priscilla Payton, who's an editor at Simon & Schuster, said, if you look at the New York Times bestseller list, basically one memoir a year makes it onto the list. So, like, bear that in mind, right? Like, that, it's hard. Selling a memoir is hard. And then what Richard said to me, Richard Pine, was memoir, when you think about memoir, it really competes with literary fiction. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, a lot of people have memoirs that they would like to publish and it like the, the bar is so high. So you're smart, you know, to, to pick the people based on their talent because, you know, I don't know, it, like you look at a book like Educated and that's an outlier, right? And, and I, if, and my one last piece of advice to aspiring memoir writers is if I get, if I had a dime for every time I got a pitch from a memoirist, an aspiring memoirist who said their book was either like Wild or Eat, Pray, Love, I would be like a gazillionaire. Like everybody thinks their books are like Wild or Eat, Pray, Love. And 
we need to find some new examples. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's kind of a long monologue, but and that, but memoirs, you know, there's nothing better than a good memoir. Well, I also think it's what's your goal. I mean, maybe your goal is not to get on the bestseller list. That's not everybody's goal. If you can share your story and affect people's lives, even if you affect two people's lives profoundly, yeah, that's I believe that's worth doing. That's somebody's entire life. You know what I mean? So I, I think people have all sorts of different goals. Well, even if you write it and you have it and your family, you have it for your family. Yeah, that too. You know, like, and that's, you're, you're right. You're right. And that you can't overlook that because it's, I think some, somewhere between two people and the best seller list. <laughs> that's the sweet spot. That's the sweet spot. <laughs> well, sorry. I know we ran a little long. I feel like I could talk to you forever and I well, did this offline and in some format at some time, but thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for truly entertaining me and making me think and feel and laugh and cry. I mean, it's just that those are all the ingredients for a great book. So I oh. truly appreciate it. And for also being like a guide, right? I love books that are by people who are just a little bit older than me to like, just, just a smidge so that I know like what's coming next. Like a, yeah. like a trusted older sister or something. So I probably should have told you the parts to skip actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't be silly. Right. Well, thank you, Debbie. This has been a huge pleasure and an honor to be on your show. And, and I love what you're doing and I'm really happy to have been here today. So oh, thanks. Great. All right. Thanks. Okay. All right. Have a See great ya. day. Bye. You too. Bye. Thanks so much to audible.com for sponsoring this podcast. I hope all of you will go to audible.com slash Zibby or text Zibby to 500-500 and download some audiobooks and check out their new popular plus catalog for so many amazing things and get your free trial for 30 days. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 